This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. David French is a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an attorney concentrating his practice in constitutional law and the law of armed conflict, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's the author or co-author of several books, including most recently the number one New York Times bestselling Rise of ISIS, A Threat We Can't Ignore. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, the past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and a former lecturer at Cornell Law School. He lives and works in Columbia, Tennessee with his wife, who is also a New York Times bestselling author, and their children. David French, welcome to Thinking in Public. David, I think it might be helpful to begin with something of a topography of a conservative thought in the United States. And I say that against the background of the fact that if you were to go back to the early decades of the 20th century, uh, there really wasn't much conversation about conservative thought, much uh, conversation about uh, a conservative mind. All that began to change, especially in the period after World War II. And you are right now sitting at something of the epicenter of, of that development. Uh, lay out a bit of the topography for us. Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of people would say that the development of sort of this coherent idea of a conservative movement, of a general consensus of what conservatism meant, really, you know, and I'm not, uh, I'm of course biased in favor of the founder of our magazine at National Review, William F. Buckley Jr., but it really did, I believe, begin around him and around the the intellectual uh, efforts that he began. And, you know, broadly, you know, there was this sort of it developed uh, through many years into, um, by the Obama era, I think a kind of a broad consensus, uh, variations within issues, of course, and, and disagreements about any given individual policy. But there's this kind of this broad uh, agreement that there were like these, the three legs of the uh, Reagan conservative stool uh, would be that there was, it was cultural conservatism, uh, there was uh, national security conservatism, and then there was economic conservatism. And the, those sort of three elements together, um, when blended together, that was when you thought of conservatism in the United States, that was, that was it. And now there's been a lot of, there was always debate about that, right? There was always discussion about any one of those three legs and always has been and always will be discussion about that, uh, much more so now uh, than you know, even a few years ago. But in, I, when you're talking about the conservative movement in general, and when you're talking about the conservative intellectual movement in general, I, I tend to think of it, and look, I'm not, an, I'm not a historian of the right. Um, you know, my colleague Jonah Goldberg is probably, if he's listening to this podcast, is already tearing his hair out at all the way I've just kind of mushed everything together. <laughs> but um, when I when I have long thought of the conservative movement, I've I've kind of thought of those three three legs of that stool. Um, and you know, but a lot of that is is up for grabs now. A lot of that is uh, a matter of debate now. And and uh, some of the smarter people who who look at conservatism actually draw a distinction between what they call the right and conservatism. Which Buckley did, as a matter of fact, uh, at, at some points in making his argument for a conservative movement. He, uh, he sometimes identified himself as a man of the right early on, and uh, because the word conservative wasn't even really well-defined at the midpoint of the 20th century. It took several landmark uh, developments, arguments, books, uh, and events to help to, uh, to define that. Uh, and, and a part of this was because if you were to go back to that period, conservatism is basically defined, or the right, in opposition to liberalism. It, it really wasn't understood as an argument uh, 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 that, uh, that liberalism was, was responding to, but uh, rather the other way around. Right. I mean, conservatism is not a word that, that defines itself. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's some interesting conversation now as to whether you, we should start reclaiming the word liberalism itself. Um, liberalism as a, as a system of government uh, is now under, under a, uh, or, or a phrase 
that some people tend to use like classical liberalism, that we should reclaim the word liberalism itself, that the concept in the defense of the liberal idea of government is, is under threat, which is different from sort of the liberal conservative divide traditionally in American politics. Right. But yes, I mean, the, 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 the word conservative is not self-defining. It could, it can mean everything as just from simply resisting change, or it often became meaning opposed to the left. Um, but, you know, I would say during the Obama administration, you would have, if you had asked your average conservative, what is it that conservatives believe, there would have been a pretty, pretty considerable consensus. Well, absolutely. And uh, kind of going back to uh, your, your conversation about the word liberal, I, I'm not very sanguine uh, or, uh, or, or positive about uh, uh, trying to reclaim that word too much, because I think uh, the more contemporary politicized uh, definition of liberal has been drilled so deeply into the culture. I think of the fact that uh, no less uh, than Herbert Hoover tried to recapture the word liberal in a conservative sense, meaning classical liberty and classical liberal thought uh, concerning freedom. Uh, but that didn't work too well for Herbert Hoover. I, I think it's probably uh, more problematic now than then. Yes. I mean, it's just a fact that the meaning of words changes over time. And, and as much as uh, historians can say, wait, hold on, there's a definition of the word liberal here that we could really reclaim and would be really useful. I, I would agree with you. I think that ship has kind of sailed. If I could speak about conservatism for just a moment, this is kind of my own lifetime. Uh, I, I, th- these dates will predate uh, my own chronology, but, uh, but then I catch up pretty fast. If I'm looking at the modern conservative movement, I think of uh, William F. Buckley Jr. and, uh, and, and his, uh, his blockbuster of a book published in 1951, God and Man at Yale. And uh, then emerging out of that uh, came eventually a National Review in 1955. But I, I want to throw in the date 1953 between those two developments, because that's when Russell Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind, was published, which was based upon his doctoral work at the University of St. Andrews. And uh, Russell Kirk, who was a, a, a friend and colleague, uh, originally a part of, uh, of the team, so to speak, at National Review, uh, Kirk really resuscitated the idea of a conservative intellectual tradition that was uh, greater than, say, just a, a conservative disposition. I, I, I think right. that's, that, that's what people generally thought when they heard the word conservative. Uh, they thought of a disposition. But, uh, but Kirk uh, went back and, and, and really did an incredibly effective job. And by the way, the conservative mind uh, I, I did a uh, thinking in public with Bradley Berzer, who uh, who wrote a great biography of Kirk. I think we we forget that the conservative mind was a massive bestseller uh, <laughs> in, in the 1950s. It, it was making an argument that was revolutionary at the time. Right, right, and well, you know, uh, one longs for the day. Well, when a uh, conservative a work a, a conservative intellectual work can be a massive bestseller. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think that there was a real opportunity by the 1950s for the conservative intellectual tradition to assert itself. And, and the opportunity, I think, was presented by uh, the fact that there was too much of a consensus. There was sort of too much complacency on the part of the left or uh, um, you know, what, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of the statist view of government, there was an awful, after all of these years of the, uh, after all the Roosevelt years, after World War II, um, there was a sense of, on some people that kind of the, the intellectual battle over the role of government in public life and, and individual liberty had been fought and it was sort of over, um, but it wasn't over. It hadn't yet entirely been fought. And so there was a a real opportunity at that time for alternative views. There was a, a vacuum uh, of, of alternative views. And I, and I think that, you know, Kirk's book and Buckley's work and the National Review filled that vacuum. And it was a vacuum that, that also requires a bit of an autopsy here. Uh, we may be mixing metaphors, but nonetheless, we have to go back and ask, how could such a vacuum exist? And, uh, and this is where people like Kirk made the argument that uh, that liberalism, uh, as a uh, I mean partisan liberalism, a progressivist uh, understanding, uh, Tick Woodrow Wilson and his progressivist understanding of government, and and you use the word statism, and uh, and and even 
uh, an early version of a call for a living constitution. Uh, you, you, you take that, and Kirk pointed out that that was actually a response to an argument, but that argument was considered normal until a contrary argument, liberalism, <laughs> had been made. And so uh, the, Kirk's great achievement, I think, was in pointing out those arguments were always there. That classical conservative tradition was there, but it was at one point the cultural consensus. The, the fact is that by the middle of the 20th century, it wasn't the cultural consensus, and thus it was fairly revolutionary to have genuine conservative thought reasserted. Well, right. And, you know, one of the things I think that's important about remembering this history is it is it shows that uh, it, it's worth remembering in part because a lot of the arguments that you hear today about uh, about ideas and social movements, you'll hear this phrase like the arc of history. Um, and and what's, what side are, are you on, on the side of history or are you not on the side of history? And remembering that the arc of history has, has moved in different directions is very useful um, because I, I think in particular cultural conservatives, especially cultural conservatives that I'm around, tend to be relatively pessimistic about this. Uh, they, they Even though they hate the phrases like arc of history or um, on the wrong side of history, they, it's almost as if they, they buy into it internally. They buy into it emotionally and look at this country and look at the cultural arc of this country and they say, well, it's just, it's moving inexorably in one direction. And we have seen in this nation ebbs and flows, swings forward, swings backward. It, it, is, it is not fixed in the way that, um, you know, the left often argues. No, the greatest example of that is uh, is to look at European history, where uh, you, you, you had the most liberal civilizations that turned fascist uh, with popular right. support in both directions. Uh, you know, you go from uh, the Weimar Republic to the Third Reich, uh, the same people uh, in democratic elections. Uh, right. And uh, so they're, they're fairly frightening parallels uh, to the argument that you're making. And in the United States, thankfully, it's not been anything that disruptive in a swing from the left to the right. But we are looking at a situation in, in which the left is in absolute shock. Um, you would think that after uh, the, the Reagan revolution, the, the shock would have worn off. But you <laughs> still see the kind of language coming from the left. We deserve to be in control. We were in control. We, we, there were few impediments to uh, to our progressivist vision. And then something went wrong. And uh, they still seem to be completely shocked by the fact that their progressivist uh, direction could be in any sense checked or even slowed down. Well, yeah, you know, you're exactly right. And and this is something that I talk a lot about when I'm speaking about national polarization around the country. And that is that the Democrats for a long time now um, have really and truly believed that it wasn't just a matter of their ideas were better. It was sort of this combination of ideas plus demographics and that they were the, uh, to, to use the John Judas book, the title of the John Judas book from, I believe, 2002, the emerging democratic majority, yeah. or to use the term from, you know, uh, in, created in the days after Obama's reelection, the coalition of the ascendant. And it sort of works like this. Their view was that you take, progressive white people and you combine them with the growing numbers of uh, Asian, African-American and Latino Americans and put those three together and you have, it's just math. It's just math. And so there was a, a feeling that, you know, the Republican party was going to sort of be almost like this rump party, like this, this fading dying entity, unless it sort of became a different kind of version of the democratic party. And so there, there was real shock in 2016 on a number of levels, but I'm not so sure they should have been so shocked because even before 2016, Republican gains at the, you know, at the state level had been extraordinary. So, yeah, it, you know, once you combine the sort of view that the ideas were superior and then you, when you combine it with the demographics being inevitably on your side, you can see why the left began to think that, well, yeah, history has a side. It's on our side. And, uh, you know, Republicans are going to be left behind. It's only a matter of time. I want to test another idea with you before kind of doing a, a further historical review. And that is that a, a part of the 
of the analysis you just did to the ideas and the demographics have to be added uh, a, a sense of moral urgency. And uh, the, the theory I want to test with you is this. Uh, I think that uh, the, the civil rights movement uh, had such massive impact on the left that uh, it, and, and, and the, the arguments for the civil rights movement were so self-evidently true, especially in retrospect, when you talk about right. a, a moral context, that the left uh, just decided that everything is now a civil rights issue. They, 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 they only have one moral grid. And, uh, and so they try to force everything in, into a civil rights framework. And uh, the, I think that, that explains a lot of the frustration on the left, but it also explains, frankly, a, a, lot, of their, uh, a, a lot of their success, especially on uh, LGBTQ issues. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, look, I, I, I can't remember who coined this term, but it was, a, it was in a piece in The Federalist a couple of years ago. Um, but talking about sort of the modern progressive has what he called Selma envy, that they looked back at the moral clarity of the great crusade um, at Selma, Alabama, and as a stand-in, of course, for the entire civil rights sure. movement, and sort of wanted to—they wanted to live through that moment themselves. They wanted to have that that great moment of moral clarity, and and so time and time again, what you see is the language of the civil rights movement applied where, frankly, it doesn't fit very well. So, for example, in the masterpiece cake shop case where you had a baker who said he wouldn't custom design a cake to help celebrate a gay wedding uh the the left said well if if he's allowed to say no well you know this is going back to the land this is going back to the world of jim crow when he's one baker out of dozens of bakers in town and there was no impediment to him protecting his rights of conscience and that gay couple getting a cake i mean they they had more than enough market uh, opportunities, whereas in the civil rights movement, you know, African-Americans would be shut out entirely of the market in many areas. And so, um, yeah, there was this desire to, to take these, uh, these disputes that had lesser, uh, that, had, that were of, of lesser gravity and apply that, that same rhetoric and that same spirit uh, from you know the 1950s and early 1960s, you see it all the time, and and it is a very powerful motivating force. Absolutely, a very powerful motivating force. If we go back uh, to 1955 and the establishment of National Review by William F. Buckley Jr., and and, and that's really an important date to me because uh, my my intellectual development uh, came at least in large part by reading National Review in my high school library. Uh, I, 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 I had conservative instincts, but I, I, I needed conservative intellectual uh, ammunition, and I, I got that in National Review. And uh, when we met Buckley Jr. started it, uh, I, I don't even think that the initials were accidental, NR, because in many ways it was kind of a response to magazines like The New Republic. Uh, it was to be a serious intellectual uh, periodical, journal, magazine. And uh, from the very beginning, it has been. But uh, in the beginning, and uh, as I recall, it was Buckley who said his, his mission and the mission of the magazine was to stand athwart history and cry halt or stop. Uh, yes. As I recall, and I think this is really important, there were really two great problems on the right uh, amongst those who would have been considered or called themselves conservatives that Buckley had to address. And in one sense, National Review uh, became the establishment conservative voice in order to uh, to defeat two really bad conservative arguments. And uh, one of them was, uh, even as we have a loony left, we have kind of a crazy right. And uh, so uh, the Buckley and National Review were established to avoid the kind of paranoia and uh, conservative conspiracy fascination that uh, that marked, for instance, the John Burt Society. Right. And uh, and then the second thing, which uh, chronologically in uh, in the, the agenda was to defeat the kind of Ayn Rand uh, uh, libertarianism in the extreme. And uh, in a big way, uh, National Review was pretty successful at at uh, at marginalizing those two movements from American conservatism. Yes, it you know, it absolutely was. Now, it's easier to look back decades later and in, in sort of. And, and, and look at it in a way that it's almost like, well, National Review swatted them aside 
when it was really a pretty painful process. And long. Uh, and long, a long and painful process, uh, but a, a process worth enduring and a fight worth having. And conservatism was infinitely better off for having that fight. Uh, and so that's something I think that's worth remembering today as we, you know, some, sometimes there is a, a bit of eye rolling at some of these internal conservative arguments about what is or is not true conservatism, um, <clears throat> whether we should be kind of, uh, whether we should be uh, sniping at each other on occasion instead of like unified against the much more dangerous left. Uh, but these, these intramural fights matter a lot for the long term and they matter a lot for the kind of ideas that will uh, govern American culture and American politics for the next 15, 20, 30 years. Well, because I would argue strongly that uh, that bad conservative arguments can be to conservatism more dangerous uh, than bad liberal arguments. Uh, we can we can subvert ourselves intellectually. We can uh, we, we can rob ourselves of intellectual and moral credibility by both making and accepting uh, on their face really bad arguments that might be labeled conservative. Oh, of course, uh, sure, absolutely, and and we really have to. Again, uh, we really have to differentiate between conservatism and oppositionalism or being, quote, just of the right. And I think one of the things that we, we have now is an, uh, an almost reflexive opposition to the left that is not so much guided by an independent principle or guided by a specific ideal as it is a, just a rejection of the bad. And and one of the and one of the areas where I think this gets let, let me be more precise about what I mean. So one of the developments uh, in modern life that I think is pretty darn toxic is the rise of political correctness. You know, however you want to define it, but essentially the idea that that uh, the way to win intellectual arguments in many ways is to sort of prevent the allow only one side to have. Uh, free reign, suppress opposing views, regulate speech, et cetera, et cetera. And an awful lot of conservatives who have grown up in this politically correct environment and are sick and tired of being told what to say and what not to say have sort of responded by essentially, you know, whatever the left doesn't want them to do, they're going to do, or have begun to delight in sort of, uh, you know, this phrase triggering the libs or owning yeah. the libs. Um, has created this this world in which um, uh, there are all too many conservatives who are abandoning even even basic civility um, because they view even basic civility as a kind of weakness in the face of the left. Yeah. Um, and and I think that 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 kind that's just one example of how just opposition to the left as a motivation, as opposed to adhering to a particular ideological intellectual ideal um, is you know that that kind of difference and that kind of distinction I think is, is sometimes lost on folks it's important for us to recognize and always remember that ideas do not come out of a vacuum ideas come from somewhere they are a part of some kind of tradition of language they come from previous ideas. Arguments emerge from preceding arguments. And modern conservative thought is really only understandable with the rise of the modern conservative movement and the arguments and ideas that became a part of American conservatism at that time and continue now as a part of American conservative discussion and debate. As we uh, look at, again, that topography of conservative thought in the United States, uh, 1955, the establishment of National Review, and, th and then, you know, w within uh, less than a decade, you've got the Goldwater Revolution uh, in the Republican Party and, uh, and the, uh, the awakening of the nation to the fact that there are a lot of conservatives in the United States, even though Johnson won in a landslide, uh, there was an organized conservative movement that the left had to recognize for the first time. And not only that, there were figures who emerged even in the 64 election cycle, including 
the newly elected uh, governor of California, Ronald Reagan, who uh, whose speech for Goldwater was more remembered than Goldwater speeches. <laughs> uh, you, you had something definitely happening. But by the time you get to, uh, say, 1980, the conservative landscape is, uh, is a lot more complicated. And, and, and maybe this was a sign of success, a, a larger conservative movement. But now you have not only conservatives, you've got neoconservatives. And uh, right. not only do you have National Review, but by 1995, you'll have the Weekly Standard. Right. Now, uh, uh, as uh, I believe it was Irving Kristol famously said, a, uh, a neoconservative is a liberal mugged by reality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, let, let's talk about how that wing of the larger conservative movement came about. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that, that's an interesting question, and it's a word now that has uh, almost lost its, its original meaning. Um, that's right. And, and, and it's a word that is, you know, fought over a great deal today. Uh, but, you know, one of the things about neoconservatism is it was, I think a, it was a conservatism that came in so many ways, sprung forth from the Cold War. And, and a lot of folks have uh, especially younger folks have sort of forgotten the the intellectual climate created by the Cold War, the national security challenges of the Cold War, um, and how that worked its way through American culture in so many different ways. And I, I, I feel like that uh, that's one thing that uh, it, when you're looking back on sort of the history of the right, the role of the Cold War and the role of anti-communism uh, the rise of alliances like NATO, um, all of those things were so critically important in such enormous parts of American life that, um, you know, when we talk about NATO today, um, it, we just kind of forget about all of that. It's just sort of this military alliance we have and these obligations we have, and nobody quite remembers why. But, you know, neoconservatism in... in um, you know, certainly, uh, I remember I was I was in, in high school in the 1980s and uh, college, early late 80s, early 90s, and and the rise of this sort of um, you know Cold War conservatism, uh, more secular maybe in mindset and in outlook, was very very interesting. Well, it was, and uh, there there was a Jewish dimension to this. Uh, there there were uh, there were many prominent uh, American Jewish intellectuals who had been identified with classical liberalism, who came to the judgment that political liberalism, uh, especially in the uh, the left in the United States, had actually turned hostile to uh, the very ideas of liberty uh, that classical liberalism had uh, had had uh, enshrined and and honored. And then there was the understanding that uh, the left was woefully uh, underestimating the threat of communism and specifically the Soviet Union. And, and so right. it is interesting that right now when you hear the word, and, and you're right, the word has changed in its, its valence or meaning. Right now what most people mean by neoconservative is merely a foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah, it's an internationalist, interventionist foreign policy, and that's that. Um, when, you know, it's actually a much more, it's a much richer intellectual tradition. Um, but yeah, I mean that, but it, it has, in so many ways, these words have become shorthand, um, for just sort of one aspect of a much larger whole. The same things happened on the left, by the way, the term neoliberal is, is, is now used with derision on the left. Uh, uh, it, it basically is a way of dismissing, uh, people who, uh, had been, uh, elected by the democratic party in the United States, like Bill Clinton or the labor party in uh, Britain, such as Tony Blair, neoliberal means capitalist and not socialist. Uh, <laughs> it's now an epithet used uh, by the left of those who formerly would have been considered of the left. Yeah, you have these old ideological divisions and these old uh, or older, not, not all that old, but older ideological divisions that get boiled down to a caricature, that get boiled down to a, you know, a, one or two policy positions, and then that's, that's the whole. And, and it, becomes, it becomes the insult. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, it's going to be very hard to see the word neoconservative anymore not used as an insult. Yeah, and uh, of, of course, there's, there's a, a lot of water under that bridge, isn't there? And uh, I, I think it's important for us to realize that conservatism uh, in, uh, in, in the 80s and, uh, and e even going back uh, to the founding of, of National Review, but more clearly has become a moral argument. 
I, I guess if, if if you you would say that with Kirk, it's a moral argument about the uh, the necessity of the entire moral order. Uh, with Buckley, it was uh, and and with the team at National Review, it was a very clear understanding of the moral threat of communism uh, and of atheistic communism to 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 uh, to pinpoint the problem. But by the time you get to the '70s and the '80s, you've got a full moral and and sexual revolution taking place in the country, and and so conservatism is is making a very strong moral argument, a counter argument to the moral argument of the left. And to this day, there's a big argument right now about to the extent that there's a moral that conservatism should continue to make moral arguments. I mean, that is something that is a a um, and that is a question that I'm confronted with all of the time. There's sort of this argument now that a moral argument in politics is considered to be virtue signaling, that moral arguments are alienating, that moral arguments are illegitimate. And this is something that's really distressing for me to see as a, as a longtime conservative, because this is a, a moral arguments have been the bread and butter of conservatism for a very long time. And a moral, con- a moral construct to, to conservatism was vitally important in large part because conservatism understood that that politics is downstream from culture and culture is shaped by morality. Yes, an argument we have to make over and over again. And of course, it's it's something of a circular argument because uh, even though culture precedes politics, and I want to insist upon that, uh, we can credit many people with that, but at least one of them would have to be Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, But culture includes politics. So there's a, there is a political contribution to the culture that precedes the politics but it should at least humble conservatives, even if it will never humble liberals, to understand that uh, there are no ultimate political achievements. There, there is no ultimate political victory. And the culture itself will never be won by essentially political right. tools. Right. I mean, exactly. And, but, you know, one of the things that I fear is that I have really seen a reluctance of conservatives to understand that of late, uh, that politics has become so consuming politics has become so important it has become so contentious that these cultural arguments are being not just uh, not just abandoned often but often mocked yeah and i think part of that is the increasing secularization of conservatism um you know, Peter Beinart wrote a really interesting piece uh, and and Ross Douthat has actually written about this as well absolutely that, that a lot of people have been longing for the end of the quote religious right, and that in the belief that the post-religious right would be um, the the post-religious right that emerged would be more moderate, would be more um, civil, would be more reasonable, would be more rational, and the reality is that the post-religious right is not more of those things. That the post-religious right is more contentious. The post-religious right is um, more obsessed with politics, the post-religious right is, um, is, has become uh, more intolerant. And, and Peter Beinart wrote an interesting piece in The Atlantic, and he said, this isn't just true of the post-religious right. It's also true of the post-religious left as well. That's right. And that the rise of the post-religious left has increased intolerance. And so these post-religious political movements are very absorbed in politics. It's the politicization of everything. It's politics as religion. Uh, have been excessively neglectful of culture and extraordinarily intolerant. And I think that that's something that's partly responsible for the rise of negative polarization in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the confusion of conservatism with mere populism of the right and uh, and, and in, a, right. in an essentially secular argument, as you say. By the way, I, the, this is another issue that vexes me tremendously, because I, I, I just want to ask the right and the left, do you want to know what secular conservatism or, or secular liberalism, I really would prefer to say the secular left or the secular right looks like, just look at Europe in the 20th century. It's not that we have to scratch our heads and wonder what that looks like. Uh, it's horrifying. Right. I mean, you know, it's the, and part of this has been driven by this elite view uh, that, that religion is inherently problematic that a religion is inherently unreasonable, that religion is inherently divisive, and, um, and, and that atheism or agnosticism or just secularism more broadly is going to be always and forever more reasonable. It is going to be more rational. And, you know, the extreme version of this was Christopher Hitchens, who 
would answer you by saying, well, yeah, I mean, all what the what the secular or atheistic tyrannies of the 20th century were doing were imitating religious uh, movements. Right. That's where they got their idea about how to be so awful, which I think is is absolutely ridiculous when they were self consciously trying to track against religious movements but right and christopher hitchens by the way would talk out of both sides of his uh, of, of his mouth on this uh, especially later in his life he he um he, he seemed to despair of uh of, of any secular alternative even though he insisted on it yeah you know it, but it's his inconsistency is one of the things that made him so interesting in, um, indeed he he never failed. Uh, he never failed to entertain or intrigue. But uh, yeah, we are relearning some hard lessons right now in this country. And one of the in the the hard one of the hard lessons that we're learning is that the abandonment of God has negative cultural consequences, and it creates holes in the human heart that politics cannot fill. And then politics just gets more intense and more divisive and more angry as it struggles and strives to do what it cannot possibly do. And, and that's what we're seeing sort of writ large right now in the United States. Yeah, and as the stakes get higher, the political desperation just grows uh, also in intensity. And so people who would never have justified uh, certain political acts or political choices a generation before, for that matter, five or six years before, find themselves uh, uh, justifying just about any political action. Uh, there's another angle to that that I think is, uh, and, and this is not a unique observation, but I've uh, I've tried to develop it a bit further in my mind. Uh, the, the, there is the understanding that uh, the what we might say uh, extreme energy uh, amongst some in the conservative uh, movement on the right, uh, or at least in conservative voting patterns, or you might even say Republican voting patterns, just to, to try to be specific. A part of it is due to a certain sense of uh, the elimination of alternatives. So uh, to put it bluntly, uh, at least one explanation for what's going on right now is that conservatives understand we have lost the popular culture. We have lost Hollywood. We have lost influence, for that matter. We're not just lost control. We've lost influence. Uh, We've lost higher academia. Higher education is just completely in the hands of the left. So all that's left, according to this logic, is electoral politics, uh, at which conservatives can often uh, be successful. And uh, so since it's right. the only area in which conservatives have recently been successful, it's where they put all their hopes. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's not healthy. Yeah, you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. But I would extend this, and I would say that one of the reasons why we are so polarized, and this, this is something that uh, this is not an original thought to me. My, my colleague, Michael Brendan Doherty, has been saying this at National Review. Others have been saying this. In reality, both sides believe they're losing. Both sides uh, are, feel like they're behind the eight ball. And when you say that to a conservative ar- uh, audience, uh, it's almost like they burst into laughter immediately. <laughs> what do you mean the left thinks it's losing? The left, just as you said, has the Academy. It has Hollywood. Um, it has, you know, the permanent apparatus of the bureaucracy is overwhelmingly left wing. I mean, it's just got the levers of power in so many different places. And so conservatives just bust out laughing at it. But that's our vision of what it looks like to lose. And their vision is we're out of we're shut out of power, yeah. you know, and 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 for the left, which often puts politics at a higher place um, than culture. To be shut out of that higher place is particularly galling. And so the left looks at it as we're, we do not have the power which we should have. And then the right says, well, we, this is our last bastion. And so both sides have this view that they're losing. And so therefore both sides have this feeling of desperation. Um, but you're exactly right. I mean, on, on, the, on the right, there's a view that all of these cultural, uh, all these cultural levers are just lost. Now, interestingly, I believe that's a little bit exaggerated, uh, and is becoming less the case as our media environment fragments. Um, so it's actually, you know, if you are a, if you're somebody who's um, conservative, the kinds of entertainment that you can watch that are not dominated by the left point of view are actually multiplying these days as the media environment fragments and more different kinds of shows are created, more different kinds of music 
is written, um, that, that monopoly, while the left is still generating most of it, the actual products are of much greater variance than they used to be. So there's, um, so there's actually some interesting developments in that way, but that doesn't mean that you know, the right has any real foothold in Hollywood yet. I'm looking forward to a conversation in a, uh, an upcoming Thinking in Public with Gary Saul Morrison of Northwestern University about, uh, about Russian literature, uh, in particular Dostoevsky and uh, its relevance for uh, the very questions we're talking about today. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, of something one of my college professors pointed out, and that was this, uh, stories uh, of revolution uh, tend to outsell stories of cultural stability, but the stories <laughs> of cultural stability tend to be the stories that are read for centuries, not, not, not just uh, for a matter of years. Hmm. And uh, so there's some eternal permanent truths. Let's, let's go back to, uh, to Kirk. Uh, there, there are permanent truths that emerge in that kind of literature. And uh, the odd thing I'm noticing right now in a lot of even the, uh, the cultural production of the left is the fact that what they're really doing is trying to make, uh, for instance, um, they're, they're trying to make same-sex marriage look like marriage. They're, right. they're, they're doing their best to make uh, what, what sometimes are called alternative families look like a family. Right. They are now trying to make their leftist revolutionary vision uh, look more, uh, uh, well, stable, uh, more like uh, what conservatives understand uh, marriage actually to be. And uh, th- that's subtle, but I think it's something we have to watch. Yeah, you're right about that. And, you know, the... the the marriage argument is, you know, Andrew Sullivan is probably more responsible for that than anyone else of sort of saying, hey, you know, um, the LGBT movement is should be just like every other American community and, you know, get married, settle down, have children. Uh, and this is a, this is a change. I mean, again, uh, you know, we have such a recency bias, but the early days of the sexual revolution, there was a strong intellectual and moral argument for like near total disruption of, of sexual mores and norms. And I would even say that some of the feminist argument on campus, for example, is sort of bringing out a, like a tattered zombie version of Christian sexual ethics mm-hmm. and, and, you know, not, not limiting it to marriage, but trying to uh, rein in the excesses of the, of the hookup culture, trying to, uh, essentially, in many ways, uh, criminalize drunken sexual acts. Um, I mean, there, there's a very interesting, and for somebody who was in college in the 80s and in law school in the uh, early 90s, the idea that there would be this, this um, extreme backlash against a libertine sexual culture on campus, uh, was, would, you would have kind of laughed at that. No way. That's just these fringe, fringy Christians and fringy hardcore feminists. But there's this really interesting backlash now against libertine sexual cultures. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's sort of like there's this parallel moral superstructure being built that is imitating in many ways some of the wisdom of the cultural past. So you've got Margaret Atwood uh, and The Handmaid's Tale, which I—, I try to remind people what's not written about the moral majority, the new Christian right, and, uh, and moral conservatism. It was written as a parable of uh, the, uh, the, the oppression of Canada by the United States of America. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it was not written as uh, Atwood and others would have us to believe uh, these days. But you've got that on the left, and, and so you've got the women showing up in their Handmaid's Tale costumes all over the place. But I, I pointed out to a secular reporter not too long ago, but if, if you want to see the scarlet letter these days, uh, you don't look to the right, you look to the left. Right. Uh, because, it, it, you know, you, you've got the whole uh, left with their, their ridiculous morality of consent uh, trying to, uh, to figure out how in the world uh, they, can, uh, they can coerce the world into that, uh, that moral uh, uh, straitjacket. And so they're the ones right now of the scarlet letter. Well, right. So essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to preserve a version of libertinism, but a costless libertinism, an emotionally fulfilling libertinism. 
but what this what this more uh, this morality of consent does, and and they still have not grappled with this, and that I've written about this at length, is that what the what the morality of consent is, which to be clear, how I define the morality of consent, which is essentially that a con consented to sexual activity between cons uh, between adults is moral. The definition of what is moral is what is consented to. But what that morality does is it sexualizes essentially all spaces. There's no place that is not free from at least a theoretical uh, flirtation, a theoretical advance, because if the only measure is consent, well, how do you know you're going to get consent except by seeking it? And so whereas a traditional Christian sexual ethic, if you're working with a married man, for example, your whole workplace should be uh, a, a workplace that is free from any sort of sexual advance. It's free from any sexualization at all. Ideally, of course, sadly, we know that's not the case often, but there's a degree of safety and security that should exist that's not possible to exist in the morality of consent because in the morality of consent, married, not married, doesn't matter. At work, not at work, doesn't matter. Any place is appropriate so long as there's consent. So I wrote about this in a book published, uh, I guess it was 2017. And, uh, you know, the, the landscape changes so fast. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the arguments on the left are, uh, are, are changing at lightning speed. So let, let me run this past you. When you talk, I agree with you emphatically in what you said about uh, the morality of consent. And as I started out, it's a, it's it's a just on on its face, it's an inadequate morality. It's a, it's inadequate in every conceivable way. But we also need to note they can't define it really. So, you stated it right that uh, that the consented to act is a moral act according to their their reasoning. The problem is they are beginning to redefine who is able under what conditions to give consent. Right. And uh, and so clearly uh, minors can't give consent. Well, we agree to that. But uh, but what about an intern in the White House? Uh, <laughs> Hillary Clinton seems to think she can give consent, even though the mainstream left doesn't believe that she could give consent to the president of the United States. And and then, of course, if, if she is uh, in uh, she or let's just say he to be uh, totally fair, if uh, if the individual has uh, consumed alcohol or some kind of uh, of drug, then consent can't be given. But now the new argument is, if there's any form of emotional coercion, it can't be yep. consent. Well, good grief. Uh, in that case, consent has just completely uh, evaporated, especially when consent is now legally and morally meaningful in retrospect. Right. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. And and then the problem is, um, you know, none of these rules are really written down, for example. Um, they're ever-changing. They're reflecting. They're in response to uh, external events. And so what you have is sort of men and women who are trying to navigate this new um, morality really just kind of struggling to figure out what to do, and which makes me, you know, very thankful, again, for the Christian sexual ethic because— uh, we fortunately don't have all of that ambiguity, but you're exactly right. I mean, I, I would say right now, if you're talking about a relationship in which there's a perceived material power imbalance, then there's not consent. Uh, if you're talking about uh, any intoxication above a certain um, undefined amount, there's not consent. Uh, if you're talking about a, an action that is not preceded by a verbal question. Um, there are some even who would say there is not consent, but yes, it's, it's changing very, very rapidly. You know, I was speaking on a major uh, secular university campus some months ago, and I, I was talking to students about these issues, and I said, uh, so uh, what marks uh, the campus today is uh, sexual liberty and, and freedom? They said, yes, that's, that's basically what's going on. So I said, let me get this straight. Uh, story, and I believe it was USA Today, just about the time I was there, about a prominent media uh, a figure, a mother, saying to her 17-year-old, 18-year-old son going to college, I want you to text me before you take a sexual act in order to document in contemporaneous time the oh fact my. that she has given consent. Then at the same time, uh, major media is reporting on new apps for your smartphone 
that are to document consent in, in which, as you say, for every single step about who does what, when, with whom, touching where, you, without going into details, that's what the app is. And uh, they were describing this to me, and I said, so this is what sexual liberty looks like, right? This is sexual freedom. This is the, this is the utopia of sexual freedom. Uh, you have to consult your app, uh, you know, multiple times or call or text your mother. Uh, You know, yeah, I I can just tell you that when I was a a, a kid in the 60s, that was not the the vision of sexual uh, uh, liberty that was being put forward. Well, and you know, one of the reasons why, because it's frankly, it's my generation. So I'm almost 50. So my my oldest is in in college. My peers from from law school are campus administrators. We are the weird sort of generation two of the sexual revolution. So we're the we're the generation raised in divorce. I mean, not me, thankfully, raised by wonderful parents who are still married. But at, sort of in the broadly speaking, we're the generation raised in divorce. We're the generation of college after the onset of the sexual revolution. We are the libertine generation from the 1980s, and there's an enormous amount of emotional, and psychological, and spiritual baggage from that time. And I and and so what are we also? We are the helicopter parent generation. Yeah. And and you know a lot of people make fun of helicopter parents, but you're talking about parents who are still living with the consequences of eight of teenage and early twenties libertinism. They're still battling through that. Sure. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I think that I, I dislike helicopter parenting as a concept. I dislike the way in which we raise kids now to be a little bit more fragile or a little too fragile. But you have to understand that this is not coming from nowhere. This is coming from a lot of emotional and spiritual wreckage, and we have to recognize that. Well, in conclusion, David, let me ask you, as, as you look at the great uh, intellectual challenge facing Christians, and, uh, and I'll go ahead and say conservatives uh, in this context as we're trying to think about the issues we've discussed, uh, what, what do you think that great challenge uh, is, is going to be in the years ahead? You know, I, I, I would put it this way. I think it is putting one of the great challenges for politically minded Christians and conservatives is putting politics in its proper place. Here's what I mean by that. In the 2016 election, before the 2016 election, after the 2016 election, I see an awful lot of fear amongst Christians, an awful lot of willingness to compromise on their principles for the sake of meeting this or that emergency condition, Um, a real panic that often exists in the political sphere. And I just, especially as as a Christian, I find that distressing. And and I I was speaking the other day at a a conference, and and I, you know, reminded the, the, um, the congregation about, you know, the, the uh, Assyrian army bearing down on tiny Judah. And Hezekiah has, you know, pondering whether to appeal to Egypt for help. And, you know, and Isaiah is very clear about, you know, who is the deliverer of Israel. And it is not Egypt. And, and in the face of threats that are so much less dramatic than the Assyrian army, <laughs> It's, yes. it's, it seems that Christians often show more panic. And, and I think that that is something that as a, as a community, we have to guard against. Um, as a yes. community, showing that our hope is not found. We don't trust in princes and chariots. We're not going to go down to Egypt. I think that that is a core challenge. And we cannot say, as the people of God, you cannot say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, you know, exhibit and 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 applaud high integrity and steadfastness in every other area of life, but you know, politics, it's just too important. It's just too important. Um, I and I, I, I'm gonna have to compartmentalize that, and I'm gonna have to compromise. And I think that that is going to be an immense challenge, and it will become more of a challenge as America secularizes because. We're not always going to be having, uh, it's not going to be unusual, let me put it that way, to have two candidates that, you know, either are not Christian at all or um, 
deeply flawed in various ways. So I, I would say putting politics in its proper place, maintaining faith, understanding that our hope is in the Lord, it's not in princes and chariots, that's going to be a central challenge as America secularizes. I think that is incredibly well said, David. And uh, to that, I want to say that putting politics in its place also uh, prevents us from a defeatism uh, and reminds us that uh, even when we lose an election, we still have to raise our children. And yes. we, still, we, we, we still have to, uh, to be faithful as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, are, we, we, we still have essential uh, responsibilities to fulfill regardless of, uh, of, of who is president. Well, these are very interesting times, and uh, it's a time for Christians to think. And I really appreciate David French for thinking in public with me today. David, I'm thankful you are where you are. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for all you do. It's been a real joy to uh, be on your podcast. I deeply appreciate it. One of the realities I most appreciate about the American political tradition is that it has been from the beginning about ideas. On the conservative side of the American spectrum, many of those ideas, by definition, really became a part of American cultural discourse only because of the challenge of progressivism and liberalism. Before that, it was basically understood that the ideas that conservatives now espouse were realities and truths and patterns of life that had been commonly held by humanity throughout previous generations. That's what it means to be a conservative. It means to seek to conserve that which is valuable in society, that which is true, that which must be honored and preserved in order for society to flourish, for the conditions of liberty and of freedom to endure, for human dignity to have sustainable meaning, and for citizens to understand one another as more than mere citizens, but furthermore, as human beings, as Christians understand, fellow human beings made in the image of God. That changes our political discourse. On the conservative side of American politics, one of the most important journals, one of the most important arenas of that kind of intellectual conversation has been National Review magazine. I really appreciated my conversation with David French, who is now both senior writer and senior fellow with National Review and the National Review Institute. National Review continues to be a place for the exchange of ideas and for a commitment to permanent truths. It's very important that Americans, it's especially important that American conservatives understand where arguments originated, how arguments were formed, how the conservative movement as we understand it, the conservative intellectual tradition, was hammered out in argument in history by real human beings engaging with other real human beings in a contest of ideas that doesn't just go back to the midpoint of the 20th century, but reaches far further back in human history and is as relevant as the latest headline and the latest conversation in American politics and popular culture today. David French is himself a man of ideas, and that's what made the conversation so interesting. And the best kind of conversation with this kind of serious discussion of ideas is a conversation that can continue. That's my hope with thinking in public, that it's not just a conversation overheard. It's a conversation that is extended, perhaps by you and the listeners of this program, where you have the opportunity to enter into that same discussion of ideas that matter. And that's where Christians understand there is no idea that does not matter. And the ideas that matter most are the ones that have the most to do with human dignity and with truth and reality, the very issues that should frame our proper concern at the most foundational and urgent of levels. One of our primary Christian responsibilities is to think, and to think faithfully. And one of the gifts we can give each other is to think in public. Thanks again to my guest, David French, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.